This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Paper Bags. Want a bag that can't hold anything and is bad for the environment? Try a paper bag today. Welcome to episode 11 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Let's dive in with one of the biggest stories of the year, Murder Hornets. The point of 2020, where if a screenwriter were pitching 2020 to Warner Brothers as a movie, they'd tell him he went completely off the rails. The screenplay was going so well. Scary virus, economy tanks, chaos in the toilet paper aisle, cool environmental podcast, and then you add a killer hornet? Nobody's gonna believe that anymore, man. Pick a lane. Seriously, you just put two scary-sounding words together and called it a day. What's next? Sixth Sense Spiders? Forgetting to turn off the oven, vice principles? But we're not going to talk about murder hornets today, because if you can believe it, 2020 has yet another invasive insect species, and it's causing a lot of damage. Washington State has declared a state of emergency over invasive Asian gypsy moss. Already in a race to stop the Asian giant hornet from spreading across the state, Washington has found itself in a battle with yet another invasive insect. Governor Jay Inslee has issued an emergency proclamation against this imminent danger of a gypsy moth infestation in parts of the state's Snohomish County. And I get why murder hornets got a lot more attention this year than gypsy moths. I mean, death plus super bee is a lot catchier than ethnic slur plus less colorful butterfly. But gypsy moths pose a real problem, too. Gypsy moths often defoliate millions of acres of forest in a single year, they pose real economic and health risks, and they can show up at your home. So today, we're going to break down why gypsy moths are so harmful and what we can do to stop them. But first, a little about gypsy moths. There's two types, the Asian gypsy moth, which is now in Washington and western states, and the European gypsy moth, which has caused a lot of problems in eastern states. Gypsy moths aren't actually a big deal in Asia and Europe because they've been integrated into the ecosystem over thousands of years and kept under control by natural predators like rodents and birds. But gypsy moths are not native to North America. In fact, before the 1860s, they weren't even here. Rarely can we pin an environmental disaster on a single person. But the invasion of the gypsy moth caterpillar rests squarely on one man, an artist and amateur scientist. Gypsy moth was brought here by someone back in 1868, and we know exactly who did it. His name was Leopold Truvelo. He was doing some half-baked experiments, trying to mate gypsy moth with other species, and they escaped from his bedroom window. Unleashed to wreak havoc on the landscape. Yikes, that's gotta hurt. Scientists can say with more precision who started the gypsy moth problem than Gotham City residents could say who Batman is. Bruce Wayne was clearly the only guy rich enough for all those gadgets, and he was, you know, trapped in a well with bats as a kid. But sure, Detective Gordon, pretend you can't figure it out. Since gypsy moths are not native to North America, they don't have any natural predators. And for any species, a lack of natural predators leads to a huge spike in population since they're not getting eaten. But for gypsy moths, it's a whole other story. 
The female moths are capable of laying thousands of eggs, meaning thousands of hungry caterpillars, which will then turn into thousands of terrifying moths, which will then give birth to thousands and thousands of more eggs. And so the cycle continues, and ain't nobody got time for that. Oh, and apparently these mommy moths lay eggs that are like covered in a bunch of tiny hairs. The idea of slimy little eggs covered in hair is just not something that I enjoy. Really? I thought slimy little eggs covered in hair was the third most popular breakfast item at Denny's, just behind moldy pancakes stuffed with John Lithgow's toenail clippings and a plate of human tongues. But it's true. Each female gypsy moth lays thousands of eggs, and since their lifespan is only about a year long, that means thousands of new caterpillars every year. And while it's scary enough for an insect to be multiplying faster than the parents on TLC reality shows, Gypsy moth booms pose an even bigger issue, defoliation. Gypsy moths are defoliating insects, so in terms of the physiology of the tree, the tree's losing leaf barrier, which means it photosynthesizes less, and it, really defoliation acts as a stress on the tree. If those trees are also drought stressed, or they're growing in compacted soil, or maybe they're diseased, maybe they're wounded, you know, you get two or three of these stresses and the trees basically just run out of energy. And that's when you see some trees start to die. Exactly. Gypsy moth caterpillars don't actually kill trees themselves. They just chip away at the leaves. And when you've got a whole forest full of them, that can absolutely decimate a tree. Without leaves, trees can't photosynthesize as much. And after losing that source of energy, trees become vulnerable. And if the gypsy moths pop up enough years in a row, or if the tree simultaneously gets hit with a drought, disease, pest, or fungal infection, they can die. Environmentally, that creates a ripple through the ecosystem. Leaves create a canopy over a forest, which provides a shaded hiding spot for birds to build their nests. When the caterpillars eat the canopy, the birds either abandon their nests because it's too hot, or the nest becomes exposed to these bird-shaped gonads. With both parents out of the house, a cowbird female darts in. She doesn't want to raid the nest. She wants to add to it. Cowbirds make no nests of their own and must use someone else's. Her plan is to have the diligent couple raise her chick, incubating it in their cozy home, both working hard to see it fledge. In other words, the bird equivalent of Tom Brady. Remember, he doesn't want to raid the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he wants to add to it. And just because the last time someone put their baby in a basket and tricked someone else into raising it, he led the Jews out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, and found a giant rock that had be nice to your parents and don't sleep with your neighbor carved into it, doesn't mean it will work out again this time. And it's not just birds. After gypsy moth caterpillars eat, they poop. And of course, where better to poop than a stream with an ecosystem of its own? Basically, the gypsy moth, as it's eating leaves and it's forming its droppings, they're falling down into the water and doing quite a bit of damage. Uh, they're actually increasing the organic load in the streams, which can then let algaes go crazy in the streams. Also, the as the gypsy moth feeds, there's not as much shade on those streams. That increases the water temperature. You increase the water temperature just a degree or two, and you can have a profound impact on salmon species in particular. 
and kill off the salmon species in that stream. And that's not all. Wild turkeys and deer depend on forests for cover. Oak trees, which gypsy moths particularly like, produce acorns which feed deer, squirrels, mice, rabbits, foxes, some birds, and basically every other character in Bambi. Defoliation also dries trees out, which can lead to increased risks of wildfires, which again leads to habitat destruction and loss of biodiversity. By eating leaves and pooping, gypsy moth caterpillars set off all these chain reactions that disrupt the entire ecosystem. I don't know why we call it the butterfly effect, when it very clearly should be called the gypsy moth effect. Gypsy moth invasions aren't just bad for the environment, they're also bad for the economy. When trees are stressed, or in some cases killed, the wood quickly loses value, turning it from a high-quality veneer log to a lower-quality saw timber log. And since gypsy moths can sometimes kill as much as 50 to 90% of a forest, they've actually taken a toll on the timber industry. In Iowa, for example, a state report found that gypsy moths cost their timber industry over $22 million per year. And if you're wondering just how much $22 million is, ask this YouTube sensation. We are actually <laughs> talking about a seven-year-old who actually made $22 million last year um, reviewing toys. Wow, for $22 million, those must be some pretty sophisticated reviews. We're in outer space! Alright, I stand corrected. So that covers forests, but what if you're not Tarzan and you're not a manager at Home Depot? Well, gypsy moths can spread beyond forests to urban trees or trees in your own backyard. Since urban trees are under a lot of stress already from pollution, road salts, construction damage, and the little tiny fences that block them from going to hang out with their tree friends, they are particularly susceptible to getting killed by a gypsy moth infestation. And that same report from Iowa estimated that gypsy moths have wiped out five and a half million urban trees statewide, leading to over $4 billion in replacement costs. Four billion. That's almost as many gallons of spit Jonathan Gruff produced singing You'll Be Back in the Hamilton movie. And since trees improve air quality in a number of direct and indirect ways, cities have a lot more to lose than money when gypsy moths show up. Gypsy moth caterpillars can cause all the same problems in your backyard, too, as Susan Nyber of Toronto found out during a particularly bad outbreak in 2012. She spends her days outdoors, not enjoying the summer weather, but picking gypsy moth caterpillars off the trees nonstop. It's made the backyard absolutely useless at the moment. How frustrating is that for you? Well, it is. And even our front porch that is away from the trees will get about four caterpillars a day. Susan later told that reporter that she picked over 20,000 caterpillars off the trees on her lawn. And she wasn't alone. Properties across the city were covered. And when gypsy moths come in contact with humans, this happens. In the past few weeks, people with sensitive skin who've come in contact with a gypsy moth caterpillar have developed allergic-type reactions with a reddish rash or bumps. The hairs on gypsy moth eggs and caterpillars carry histamines, which cause allergic reactions including itching, redness, swelling, and hives. The rashes can generally be treated with an anti-itch cream or allergy medication, but they're certainly not fun. For homeowners who don't have the time or patience to pick 20,000 caterpillars off their trees, 
they might have to hire a professional to treat the problem, and those costs add up fast too. So where do we go from here? First off, spreading awareness to homeowners is critical to preventing outbreaks in backyards. Luckily, the USDA produced an informational video where they dubbed voices over woodland creatures complaining about gypsy moths, and it's amazing. <laughs> gypsy moths? Gotta go! It was not wise for that family to bring them here. Mama, why are we leaving? Mama, 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 Mama why? Why? Gypsy moths. Oh. I have nowhere to sleep anymore. Can I live in this tree? Is this tree taken? This place used to be really nice. I mean, plenty of shade, lots of nuts. All they had to do was check. It's easy. Gypsy moths are no good. You, over there. Stop it. Hold on. Was that beaver at the end supposed to be German? You know it's a problem when Germans are complaining about an unwanted invasion. So there are some steps homeowners can take to prevent gypsy moth outbreaks in their yard. In the fall and winter, check your property for those slimy, hairy egg masses, including wood piles, stone walls, lawn furniture, and especially your car. Egg masses can get into the wheel wells, and when you drive your car, the eggs spread to new locations. If you find egg masses, be sure not to leave them on the ground, since they can survive that even through a cold winter. Instead, scrape them into a container and douse them with boiling water. And be sure to wear protective gloves, since they can cause those skin rashes, and way more importantly, they're slimy and hairy, sort of like Tom Selleck's upper lip. Those awareness campaigns could come from timber companies, arborists and landscapers, the government, or some sort of partnership. How about on a larger scale? Well, the gypsy moth does have some natural enemies. A Japanese fungus called Entomophaga meimega has been released in gypsy moth-infested regions, which infects the moth larva and crashes the population. Unfortunately, in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, E. meimega had helped control populations until a series of unusually dry springs in 2014, 2015, and 2016 suppressed the fungus and the gypsy moths boomed again. Since climate change leads to greater variations in weather and humidity, Imeimega will likely be a less and less reliable control. Another natural foe is the baculovirus. I sort of think about it as Ebola of insect viruses, except it's even worse. Every cell in the body, just about, is taken over by this virus and is used to make more virus, and it causes the caterpillar to rupture and just liquefy. Imagine being infected and just melting into a pile of goo. Of course, melting into a pile of goo is not the ideal way to die. The ideal way to die is watching your magician friend accidentally drown your wife during a water tank trick, become mortal enemies with him, watch him years later perform a trick where he travels seemingly instantly between two wardrobes on the opposite ends of the stage, consume every waking moment trying to figure out how he's doing it, go to America to meet some wacko scientist who builds a giant cloning machine that can perform the trick, except now you need to kill your clone every time you do the trick, then, since you're killing your clones anyway, you might as well frame the death of one of your clones on the other magician, so you do that, he gets imprisoned and then hanged for murder, then you go back to the theater to dispose of the machine, only to find the other magician standing there alive, and he shoots you dead. And while the baculovirus is disgusting, it's also effective and has likely prevented a lot of outbreaks from getting worse. When the alternative is trees dying leading to deaths of several other plants and animals in the forest, 
I'll take exploding caterpillar goo 10 times out of 10. Now, humans can't eradicate gypsy moths from North America entirely, but we can suppress them beyond natural controls like Entomophaga mimega and baculovirus. We can actually use satellite images to look at forest canopies and see which ones have been defoliated. From there, we can use targeted pesticide applications to get the populations under control. What you want to do is, is treat that population maybe with pheromone flakes so that you totally disrupt the mating. In some cases, they use BT. They use multiple applications of BT to try to knock that population out as quickly as possible. Scientists have actually been quite successful at finding pesticides like pheromone flakes and BTK, which target gypsy moths without endangering the health of humans or other species. Some, like pheromone flakes, essentially cockblock the adult males. Others, like BTK, prohibit the caterpillars from feeding, which ultimately leads them to starve and die. These pesticides are most effective, though, when the problem is caught quickly. It's a lot easier to spray a small area than a whole forest, or worse, slow the spread in an entire city or region. Policymakers need to choose whether to face the costs early in awareness campaigns and research and satellite imaging to catch the outbreaks early, or face the costs later in spraying forests, replacing dead trees in cities, and recouping the losses in the timber industry, not to mention any healthcare costs associated with allergic reactions. Given how many environmental issues there are, let alone issues total, gypsy moths are an easy problem to brush off. I hadn't heard of them before, and I get why they're not front-page news. Luckily, they don't have to be a problem if we know that they exist and keep an eye out for slimy, hairy eggs on our cars and don't just assume your 12-year-old drank his first beer in the woods, barfed on your car, and since it's puberty, even his vomit somehow has hair on it. The fact that the state of Washington declared a state of emergency this year over gypsy moths shows just how bad the outbreaks can get when they're not controlled. And if we want to avoid dead trees, biodiversity losses, itchy rashes, and multi-million dollar economic costs, then we just have to tell all our family and friends... Gypsy moths are no good. You! Over there! Stop it! Do you wish your groceries would rip your bags in half in the middle of the street? Then paper bags are for you! Not only are they flimsy and not able to be reused, but paper bags are actually more climate and resource intensive than plastic bags. Wow! Side effects of paper and bags include being biodegradable and compostable, whereas plastic bags stick around in the atmosphere. So check with your physician before using paper bags. Paper bags. Because leaving a reusable bag in the car is just too hard. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Valerie Pasquarella, a research professor in the Earth and Environment Department at Boston University. Dr. Pasquarella, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So gypsy moths were introduced to the U.S. in the mid-1800s, and since then we've continued to see them spread. Just this year, Washington had to introduce a emergency proclamation over gypsy moths, so why do these booms keep happening all these years later, and why have they been so difficult to prevent? Like many invasive pests, gypsy moths don't have any natural predators. There's very few things here in the U.S. that like to eat gypsy moth caterpillars, which in some way contributes to these kind of explosive population dynamics. But in fact, it's interesting, even in their home environments, my understanding is that gypsy moth 
experience these sorts of cyclic boom and bust outbreak cycles. And so that's kind of common to them in their home and invaded environments. Also worth noting the gypsy moth in Washington, I believe is a different species of gypsy moth than the ones that we are grappling with here in the Northeast. So in the Northeast, we have the European gypsy moth, and I believe it's an Asian gypsy moth species that we're struggling with in Washington, and they have some different population biologies. So you've done quite a bit of work monitoring and sensing gypsy moths in New England, and I know gypsy moths, they lay thousands of eggs, they can relocate really easily, so I can imagine it must be really hard to track them. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the strategies you've used and how that can help prevent their spread. So most of my work on gypsy moth has been on the monitoring side, but not necessarily the population directly, more so their effects. So I have a background in satellite remote sensing, and so my work uses time series of satellite images from a family of satellites called Landsat that get a picture of the Earth every 8 to 16 days, depending on how many satellites we have in operation. And so I take all of those observations and look for changes in the forest canopy conditions. We had our first major gypsy moth outbreak in New England starting around 2015. We had the early signs. It was hit really hard, especially Rhode Island and Connecticut in 2016. And then 2017, populations peaked and we had widespread defoliation across most of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And if you were to go out into the woods, you know, in 2016 or 2017 in a place that was being hit by gypsy moth, it looks like early spring, even though it's the middle of the summer. And so you'll look around and all the trees have just little bits of leaves left. It's a very um, strange experience walking through a, a peak summer defoliated forest. And of course, if you're kind of at that scale, going to see that in satellite imagery. So Landsat's captured it, they've used other sensors as well with even coarser resolutions, and it kind of looks like a fuzzy brown wave on the landscape. So when you get these images and you see where there might be more defoliation, what exactly do we do about that? This is where things get really challenging. So gypsy moth outbreaks had kind of been halted in New England due to the introduction of a biocontrol agent. There's a fungus called Entomophaga mimija that had been keeping our gypsy moth populations at bay for decades. The recent outbreak that we had, we believe, was a result of a series of prolonged drought years. And so the fungus, fungus likes wet conditions, wasn't doing its job. So Normally, we try and use these biocontrol agents to keep us from being in an outbreak. This was really a novel set of circumstances where our biocontrol failed and we were caught very much off guard. There used to be spraying programs and things like that, but really the unfortunate thing is gypsy moth outbreak is such a large scale process. There's not so much that can be done once it's underway. What we do tell people they can do, you have that you know, precious oak tree in your front yard, or I know there's town commons and things like that. Uh, you can treat or spray individual trees to protect them against the gypsy moth defoliation and the stresses that come with it. But really at scale, there's not so much, at least in my understanding, that we can do to really stop one of these outbreaks or intervene once it's underway. Yeah, so you said that uh, E. mimica was failing because there were 
drought years here. And I'm wondering, is that something that we expect to continue to be an issue in the future? Or do you think that was just a temporary problem? I know with climate change, our weather patterns will be changing quite a bit in the future. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. It's definitely a concern. Um, our oak forests, so oak is one of the primary host species of gypsy moth, though they are generalists, they'll nibble on anything deciduous. Our oak forests are older than they've ever been, right? They're older than they were. The last big outbreak was in the 1980s. And so we've got older trees, we've got more extreme weather conditions that include drought that may have interactions with the fungus life cycle. We're also getting more storms and wet weather in other parts of the years. And our forests are under stress from not just gypsy moth, but all sorts of other invaders and pests and things like deer acting in the understory. And so we're kind of at this novel stage where where our forests are more stressed than they've ever been in the past. And so any one lever or tipping point that gets kind of moved, we see more and more catastrophic and very damaging effects. And so we're very concerned that this may be kind of an ongoing problem with entomophaga if we start seeing lots more drought years, but we're also incredibly uncertain on all of the direct connections between all the different components um, and how that's going to play out. So a lot of work's been done on trying to understand how this is going to affect oak forests and maybe how we even prepare for uh, what our future forest might look like, assuming we'll lose a lot of oak after a bunch of years of defoliation and potentially future events. Is it possible that we would see tree species pop up that are resistant to gypsy moths or can they basically defoliate anything they want to. They are the hungry, hungry caterpillars. Um, they will eat their way through anything deciduous. We've even seen them nibbling on hemlocks and white pines when they get dense enough. The idea of evolving resistance is really interesting, especially how long they've been here. Uh, but trees have very long life cycles. And so I'm not confident that there's a fast enough turnover in our tree population to really start to kind of breed resistance the way there might be in some other species. But I do think that there will be interesting selective pressures on once trees start succumbing to gypsy moth damage. Right now we're seeing a lot of oak mortality. What's going to come back may be dependent on what is most resistant to the outbreak populations. Yeah, so we mentioned climate change a little bit before, and I'm wondering, as climate change becomes more severe, could we see gypsy moths perhaps migrating to different areas in North America? Could we see the infestations becoming more severe or more frequent? There's kind of two levels to the sprawl part of the problem. Gypsy moth is still spreading south, so there's an entire program called Slow the Spread, where they actually track where kind of the southernmost border of the gypsy moth population is. They set out a bunch of traps and try and keep track of the line down in the south and also out to the west. There's also this fear of them moving north as conditions become more favorable or more similar to places that are currently kind of in the more southern domain. But Yes, the spread has been a problem for a while. Climate playing a role in any insect life cycle makes it possible that they're going to both expand and potentially contract their ranges in response to shifting climate. 
and uh, add in a bunch of extreme weather events and things get really complicated really fast. So can we safely say that slow the spread is the tagline for 2020? <laughs> slow the spread has been the tagline for probably the whole history of the gypsy moth invasion. I mean, right from when they first were detected defoliating trees in Leopold Trouble's front yard in Medford when they escaped back in the 1800s. They saw evidence of defoliation and started doing spraying and treatment right away. So I think slow the spread has just been kind of the banner of gypsy moth in the United States all along. And yeah trying to hold the line as best we can. So having studied gypsy moths for quite some time, what would your advice be to policymakers trying to figure out how to keep these booms under control and prevent extensive defoliation? So I've touched on a lot of different pieces of the ecology that factor in here. And I think keeping a whole system perspective in mind that we're not just talking about one species of pest, we're talking about an insect that interacts with the climate variables, interacts with the condition of our forests, with the species that are in individual forest stands. So like, if you look at a map of gypsy moth defoliation, you'll see where they avoided a bunch of conifers and defoliated hardwoods. And so I think it's not just about eradicating or treating gypsy moth as the problem, but really making sure that our forests are healthy and resilient and ready for whether it's gypsy moth or Hamakoya delgid or Asian longhorn beetle or a big drought event, that our forests are, are in a healthy enough state that they're able to bounce back and that we're kind of reducing as many of the other threats that we can control, more so on the ecosystem side and healthy ecosystems as a priority for resilience to all sorts of disturbance. That makes a lot of sense. So last question. Gypsy moths versus murder hornets, who would win in a cage match? <laughs> I'm going to have to go with the murder hornets on this one. Uh, gypsy moths are, in terms of their mobility, a little more limited. So like female gypsy moths, at least the European gypsy moths, don't even fly. They just hatch and climb up their tree and wait for the next generation cycle to begin. Um, and the males, which are the brown moths, you'll see flitting around your light uh, in the summer, especially in Boston. You've probably seen a bunch of them. Kind of wimpy. You get them a little bit wet and they're done for. <laughs> so I'd put my money on something bigger, bulkier, and with a good stinger, uh, I'd say. Dr. Pasquarella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This wraps up episode 11 of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Valerie Pasquarella for her insights. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there. Today's episode was written by Olivia Amite and Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Sabrina Rawlings, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.